Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible this morning, the uh, text is on the back of the insert in the bulletin. The notes are in that bulletin. Luke chapter 9. This morning we are going to finish the ninth chapter of Luke. We're going to enter the third major section of the book. And we will consider the count and the cost of true discipleship. Counting the cost of following Jesus, Luke chapter 9. I'd like to begin this morning by reading our text, verses 51 to 62. As you remember from last week, we've taken some brief look at some of these first verses, but we'll be starting from 51 to 62, Luke chapter 9. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John heard it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone came, said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Our text divides into two sections, and it begins with a massive um, shift in Luke's gospel. Up until this point, if you look at the little outline at the top of the notes, we looked through the first three chapters included the birth narratives, both the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist and of Jesus, and the accomplishment of the birth of John the Baptist and of Jesus, ending with Jesus' genealogy. Then picking up in chapter 4, Jesus is baptized, Jesus is tempted by the devil, Jesus begins his Galilean ministry. And so from chapter 4 all the way through last week, Jesus was ministering in and around Galilee. What typified this section of the book is it's a heavy emphasis on miracles and sign works. In these five chapters, we've seen 13 miracles done by Jesus. But now, with the dawning of verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. We enter into a very different landscape from a literature standpoint. The next 10 chapters contain four, maybe five miracles. And they are dominated by Jesus' sayings and parables. By way of contrast, we had 13 miracles in, in the previous five chapters, four or five in the next 10. And the emphasis is on Jesus teaching his disciples and rebuking the false spiritual leadership of his day, the Pharisees and the scribes. So Jesus is teaching his disciples both positively by his own instruction and by negative contrast to the religion of his day. And the entire time he's heading to Jerusalem, it's kind of a roundabout pattern, he's not taking the direct route there. But understand with this, with a simple phrase, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, we are now near the end of Jesus' ministry. We're in the last year before the crucifixion, somewhere in there. 
And what we read is this, and we're going to look at point one, the resolution and rejection of the Son of Man. The resolution and rejection of the Son of Man. What, what typifies this section? We've, we've seen Jesus grow. We've seen Jesus learn. Jesus now, back in chapter 9, has evidenced his understanding of his mission. We, we saw it most clearly back after Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. In verse 20, Who do you say that I am? Peter said, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. That, as we noted, was the first time in Luke's gospel, a clear statement of the death and suffering of Jesus was spoken, said in this book. And then when he goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration, what is it that he's talking to Elijah and Moses about, but about his exodus that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Verse 31, which speaks of his departure, his being lifted up, killed, raised, and taken up into heaven. And then after he heals the demoniac and the disciples are unable to, he pulls them aside. And he says to them in verse 44 of chapter 9, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered up into the hands of men. So Jesus gets this. Luke's put this in front of us. What is Jesus' response to this? And I want to pause and, and challenge you that you don't deify Jesus' humanity, that you don't think these things are easy for him. Luke has gone out of his way to show Jesus learning, Jesus studying, Jesus being faithful. And Luke, later in the book, will have Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, looking the cross straight in the face, pleading with his Father, if this cup can pass, let it pass. Sweating as though drops of blood And so it is no small thing then that we read that Jesus, understanding this, talking to Moses and Elijah about this, what is his response to God's purpose and plan for him? What is his response to God's call to suffering and death? He set his face to go to Jerusalem. And Luke emphasizes that. It's said twice, identically, verse 51 and in verse 53. Why did the Samaritan village reject him? Because he'd set his face toward Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Jesus looked in the face what God was calling him to. He counted the cost. He, he understood it. And he was resolute, unwavering, determined, committed to pursuing God's purpose for him, God's mission for him. He set his face to go to Jerusalem and die. And that is remarkable. This is our Savior. This is our God. This is our Messiah. He knows what he's in for, and he goes anyway. He will honor God's call to his life, and he leaves us a pattern to follow after in his steps. So what happens next? The days have drawn near, which is simply to say the time was drawing close. We don't know exactly how far out this puts us from the cross, but Luke is now sort of fast-forwarding us towards the end of Jesus' ministry. And what happens now is we're going to change location. We're going to start moving. In fact, you see, um, you see down in verse 57, as they were going along the road. And for the rest of the next 10 chapters, we're moving. We're moving. We're drawing near to Jerusalem. This, this section of the book, if you go all the way to chapter 19, ends. Look at chapter 19, verse 28. And when he said these things, he went on, a, on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. 
So there is, we're approaching Jerusalem, and then he weeps over Jerusalem. Verse 41, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on the day that things make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. And then, next thing, he's in the temple. And so there's the transition to the final section of the book. Jesus in Jerusalem, where he is crucified, raised, and ascended. So we're now in this third and largest section, the journey to Jerusalem. And it begins with Jesus resolute, determined, focused. He set his face to go to Jerusalem to die. And so as he goes on, he's heading south. He sends messengers ahead to prepare his way. The language here is reminiscent of John the Baptist. He sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. If you remember back in chapter 1, the angel describing the ministry of John the Baptist said this, He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So the notion is this. Jesus is an itinerant preacher. He relies upon the hospitality of those who receive him and his followers in. He's already given his his disciples instructions about this back in chapter 9 at the beginning, where he tells them that they're to, um, verse 4, whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. So he's relying upon hospitality. And so he sends ahead an advance team, as you remember, Jesus has large crowds. The word's gone out, and they enter into a Samaritan town. And the Samaritans are the half-Jews. The Samaritans are those remnants, if you remember, the, the ten northern tribes after the kingdom was divided. You have the ten tribes up north and the two tribes in the south. And both the north and the south are unfaithful, but God sends the Assyrians with Shalmaneser V to come in and gobble up the ten tribes, and he takes them away. Well, there's some stragglers left over, the Jews, and they intermarry with the Canaanites, and they end up with a hybridized, syncretized version of Christian, of, of Judaism, I'm sorry, They only recognize the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. They have an alternate place for worship on Mount Samaria. And that's that's the whole thing that's going on in John 4. If you remember when Jesus is talking with the woman at the well and she says, where are we to worship here or there? That's what she's discussing, the alternate site of worship. Because of this, the Jews despised the Samaritans. And the Samaritans had issues with the Jews. There was a lot of tension there. And so Jesus sends his messengers ahead. And even though in other Gospels we've seen Jesus have success with the Samaritans. In fact, if we try to harmonize the Gospels up, these, the Samaritan village in John chapter 4 is the first success Jesus has in his ministry. Even though that's the case, here towards the end of his ministry, word has gotten out that Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. Where is he going? He's going to Jerusalem. Why? To celebrate the feast. The logic, oh, so he rejects our ways and he rejects our culture and he rejects our religion, then we want nothing to do with him. That's the logic. Because Jesus is heading to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast, they reject him. It's kind of ironic the way Luke presents this. Jesus' own determination to follow God's path is the basis for his rejection here by the Samaritans. Now, there'll be other Samaritans in Luke's gospel the, the one leper who returns is a Samaritan. You remember the story of the good Samaritan. So the Samaritans are not put in a totally negative light in Luke's gospel. But here, this town rejects them. Rejected. 
And we saw last week how the disciples responded to that rejection, didn't we? They, they had not learned Jesus' lessons about turning the other cheek, loving your enemies. They want to call down fire. They, they want to inhabit the power and the ministry of Elijah. T- turn, turn to uh, 2 Kings chapter 1. There are two links further to Elijah's ministry in our passage, and I just want to briefly take a look at both of these. Elijah and his ministry has been ringing through the last chapters in Luke, and it continues on here. So what John and James are alluding to is an event where um, a Samaritan king is trying to have Elijah brought to him, um, taken prisoner. And in verse 9 of of chapter 1 of 2 Kings, the king sent to him a captain of 50 men. With his 50, he went up to Elijah, who was sitting on top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. And again the king sent to him another captain of 50 men with his 50, and he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order, come down quickly. But Elijah said to them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And then fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. And then the king sends a third captain. The third captain changes the script a little bit and says, Please don't kill us. And the angel of the Lord appears and tells Elijah to go down with him. So this is, this is the event that James and John are referring to. They see the similarities, the rejection, the opposition of Samaritans, the prophetic ministry. And what does God do? He burns up their enemies. And we understood that that's not the time and place for this. That Jesus in his second coming, Jesus in his second coming will bring judgment. In fact, Jesus himself speaks of this a little later in chapter 10. Look at chapter 10 of Luke. As he's departing Galilee, he pronounces woes upon those cities in Galilee that had rejected him. But all those woes are future-looking. In other words, now is not the time for judgment. Now is not the time for fire from heaven. Verse 13, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. So, So Jesus is looking to and even pronouncing the judgment of a coming judgment. But that's, that's not this day that he's in. And the disciples misunderstand that, and so he rebukes them. He rebukes them. So what have we got here? Jesus has accepted his purpose. Jesus has accepted his mission. He's resolute. He has set his face. He's already receiving rejection because of it. We've seen the misunderstanding of the disciples. Well, what follows now after the resolution and rejection of the Son of Man is the cost to count in following the Son of Man. The first lesson we get is Jesus teaches his disciples laid out by Luke is further descriptions of what it means to be Jesus' disciple. And Jesus already introduced this, as you remember, at the, uh, the middle of chapter 9, immediately after telling them about his coming death and suffering. He helped them understand better what it meant to be his disciples. In chapter 9, verse 23, he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. 
For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now the key word there, if anyone would come after me. Now look in this text, what's the key word in these three encounters? Key word is follow. So verse 57, as they were going along the road to Jerusalem, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Then in verse 59, Jesus, now initiating it, says to some unnamed person, follow me. And in verse 61, yet another said, I will follow. So what's the key word? Follow, follow after. Just linking back to 923, anyone wants to come after me. This is about discipleship. This is about following Jesus. Now Luke takes these three encounters and he strips them of identities and names. None of these people are named. He also gives us no indication what the result or response is. We don't know whether the first man hearing that birds have nests and foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. We don't know whether, like the rich young ruler, he went away, or whether he, or it could even be a she, joined the ranks of the disciples. We don't know. We don't know whether the second man went and buried his father first or not. We don't know whether the third went and said goodbye to his parents and family. Why, Why does Luke present it like this? Because the point isn't fundamentally for us, the reader, these three people. Rather, when Luke is laying this out paradigmatically, what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to follow after Jesus? And he strips away all the things that could just confuse us, distract us, to lay out three principles, three costs to count, if you will, in following Jesus. It, it makes it clearly applicable to us. So, so in the remainder of our time that we have this morning, that, that's what we're looking at. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What cost, if any, is there to count? How does that apply to us? Luke lays this out at the beginning of the journey to the cross, at the beginning of the journey to Jerusalem. Luke lays out for us through these three incidences with unnamed people what it means to be disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. The cost to count in following the Son of Man. And what we're going to see as we look at these three encounters is a very different picture from a lot of what is presented in in the church in America today. You know, so often the gospel and following Christ is presented as, as God has loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. What you'll see here is Jesus saying, I love you and have a difficult plan for your life. <laughs> so often we want, to, we want to, to help people get them caught up in a moment of emotion to make some decision. Jesus, on the other hand, is always explaining the details up front. He always wants people to enter in with their eyes wide open. There's no bait and switch. There's no, you know, fine print. He's right up front. I mean, think about that. People are coming up to him. I will follow you. And you'd think, that's fantastic. Close the deal. And Jesus, do do you understand what you're doing? Do do you understand what that means? Luke wants us to, to do that as well. So let's look at what it means to count the cost in following Jesus. So we look at the first encounter, verses 57 to 58. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nets. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's kind of ironic. This man says, or woman, says, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, we, the reader, know where Jesus is going. Where's Jesus going? He's going to Jerusalem. Why is he going to Jerusalem? He's going to die. But this man, or woman, probably doesn't know that. So then, I will follow you wherever you go. 
I'll follow you around to Chorazin, to Bethsaida, you know, with the crowds, with all the excitement, with the miracles, especially if you can give me power to work miracles. Something like that is in this person's mind, and Jesus wants to make it clear, if you're going to follow me, I'm, I'm going to a cross. I'm going to Golgotha. And so what's, what's the point that Jesus emphasizes here to this would-be follower? What's, what's Luke emphasizing for us? It's this. You must renounce all that you have if you want to follow Jesus. You must renounce all that you have if you want to follow Jesus. Now, renounce doesn't necessarily mean get rid of. But renounce means get rid of any claim to, demands for. What Jesus is, is in essence saying is that even animals have basic levels of, of their needs met. Birds have nests, foxes have holes, and yet Jesus and his followers have no such guarantees. We've just seen that, haven't we? Jesus presumably slept in the open when he was expecting or hoping to sleep in someone's home in the Samaritan village. He was rejected, so he and his disciples had to make camp on the road or in a field or somewhere, exposed to the elements. He's just come through such a night and he wants to let this would-be disciple know that there is no guarantee of pomp, there's no guarantee of wealth, there's no guarantee of prosperity. You know, the Apostle Paul even says, with food and shelter we'll be content. Jesus is making it clear, even those things aren't guaranteed. Turn, turn in Luke's Gospel to chapter 14, where Jesus makes this point explicitly. And what you'll see as we read through these 10 chapters in Luke, Jesus is again and again and again emphasizing what does it really mean to follow him. He wants people to understand what they're doing. He, he wants to make it clear what it means to, to, to follow after him in faith. In chapter 14, verse 33 Jesus says this, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Why is that? Well, if you remember from the parable of the sower, back in, in chapter 8, there was the seed that fell on thorny ground, wasn't there? And what happened to that? As for that which fell among the thorns, verse 14, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. Their fruit does not mature. This world has a lot of things to offer us, a lot of supposed securities, a lot of supposed helps and comforts, and yet Jesus is telling this disciple, he's telling us, there's no guarantees, none whatsoever. And, and some of you, I'm sure, have seen this happen. I mean, I, I saw my father, an attorney, struck down in his prime unexpectedly, a quadriplegic. There's no guarantees. I mean, we plan and we and we we try to try to live wisely, but there are no guarantees. And Jesus is is right up front with this. You know, I've heard this illustration before. So often we think we're doing well if we take our plan for our life and we write it out, all the things we want to do. You know, you want to go to a good school, you want to get married, you want to get this job in this town, and then we take it to God and we think we're doing well if we say, "Okay, God, can you sign off on this? Can I get your stamp of approval on this?" The reality is much more God hands you a blank sheet of paper and says, sign. Well, Lord, what, what if you write poverty? Sign. What if you write sickness? Sign. What if, what if you write death? 
we assign. There are no guarantees for this life. Now, there are abundant guarantees of, of the comfort that comes from God, the fruit of the Spirit, the joy, the peace, the, the guarantees of God neither leaving nor forsaking us, that God will not give us more than we can bear, that the, no temptation will be allowed to overcome us except that which is common to man, and God will give us the strength if we rely upon it to resist. That there are those promises and guarantees, but there are zero promises of health, financial prosperity. There's none. And Jesus up front, before they become disciples, this isn't information you're just sort of sneak in after the fact. Okay, now that you're a disciple, let me tell you, he's right up front. There are no guarantees. What that literally means is we must renounce all that we have and trust God with that. Doesn't mean you have to get rid of everything you have, but you give up your claim to everything you have. Otherwise, when the things of this world look threatened, we're, we're going to turn away. That's what Jesus says happens to the seed that is sown among the thorns. The cares and concerns of this world overtake the cares and concerns of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And pretty soon what you're thinking about and what you're talking about and what's ordering your life are the cares and concerns of this world. Instead of discipleship to Jesus. We must renounce all that we have if we want to follow the Son of Man. Jesus does no bait and switch. He's up front. He's honest. He's clear. And, and that's, that's being then shared to us as followers of Jesus. And we can grow accustomed because for so long in this country, um, Christians, those who profess the name of Christ, have lived with a certain level of respect, protection from persecution. Who knows? That might be changing now. And understand, there are no guarantees. There are no promises. Jesus says, follow me. Sign on the dotted line, the blank sheet of paper, and trust that God will do what is good. Trust God with your life. And understand, there are no guarantees. Second, in verses 6, 59 to 60, you have the second encounter. Now, this one Jesus himself initiates. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. What do we learn here? You must have no higher loyalty. You must have no higher loyalty. Now, surely, this is probably one of the more difficult sayings of Jesus, but I also think it's one of the more misunderstood. Almost certainly, this man's father has not just recently died. Almost certainly. I mean, think about it. We, from reading our Bibles, we know how quickly Jews would bury their dead. Jesus is three days late for Lazarus' death, and he's been in the tomb three days and already decomposing. In that climate in the Middle East, you, you don't wait a week. You have, you have funerals immediately. So it's, it's almost unthinkable that this man is here with Jesus, and his father is, is, is lying dead back home. It's almost unthinkable. So there's two possibilities of what's going on here with this request. Can't be certain which one entirely is right, but I'll lay them out for you. He says he wants to go bury his father. One possibility, his father is not yet dead. And what he's in essence saying is, as a faithful son, I still have duties as the son of my father, and I need to care for him. And once he's passed and dead, then I'll be free to follow you, Jesus. Jesus, I want to follow you as soon as I take care of my family obligations. 
So I got some obligations. And then, once they're resolved, then I will follow you. Notice how it's in the future tense. I will follow you. Because Jesus says, follow me. Let me first go and bury my father. So this person is not following Jesus now. First, before I begin following you, Jesus, I got some other stuff to do, right? That's one possibility. The other possibility, which I was talking to Pastor Daniel about, which I find it very intriguing, is that we're actually in between the two burials that the Jews have. It's interesting. If you go back to, Gen- you don't need to turn there. If you go back to Genesis 50, 25, Joseph uh, made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry my bones up from here. And, and in later in Luke's gospel, we read that J- Jesus was wrapped in linen and laid in a tomb cut in stone that no one had ever been laid in. Well, why would that be significant? Because tombs are reused. The Jewish burial process that we can get from Scripture and is confirmed from archaeology and historical records is this. A, a person dies, you would dress and anoint their body, wrap it with linen, and put it in a tomb. Give it a year to decompose, come back a year later, collect the bones, put them in a box called an ossuary, and then bury that. So the other possibility of this young man is he's living somewhere in between the death and the second burial. But, but understand, it's almost unthinkable that this man is out with Jesus on the road, and his dad's just died. That, that's, that's not what's going on. Rather, either he's saying, let me finish my duties to my father, caring for him, or let me finish the mourning period, let me finish the, the cycle, get to the second burial. By the way, those would also be conditions for an inheritance to be discharged. It's possible that, the, that this person picked up some of the notes of the first warning. We, we can't know for certain. But what's clear here is this. The desire to be faithful to one's father and mother is a good desire. We know Paul speaks highly of it. And even the desire to finish a period of mourning is good. Jesus isn't saying those things are wrong. What he's saying is his loyalty that he demands from us trumps and exceeds all others. We must have no higher loyalty. He says, let the, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. What he's saying is this. Leave those who are spiritually dead, who are not involved in kingdom activities, because that's the contrast here is the kingdom of God. Leave the dead. Leave those, leave those activities to take care of themselves. You have kingdom activity in front of you. That's a hard saying. Because we feel the tugs and the pulls of our loyalty to our families. And the, those are not wrong things. They're only wrong when they trump, when they are stronger than faithfulness to Christ. Now, I hope many of you don't have to choose between loyalty to your parents and your family and loyalty to Christ, but there are many who do. Just talk to any Muslim convert to Christianity. Jesus, again, turn to Luke 14, is emphatic on this point. Emphatic on this point. He he never soft sells discipleship. I mean, so often we try to cut the hard edges off discipleship. Come, come pray a prayer. Come make a decision. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. We see the exact opposite in Jesus' approach to discipleship. He wants to make it abundantly clear what people are getting in for. You know, salvation is a free gift. It is absolutely a free gift. So is joining the Marines. You, you, you get what I'm saying? So is joining the Marines. It's free. It doesn't cost you anything. Absolutely free. But once you sign up, 
you're not free to do as you please. That's probably the best analogy I can think of. Look at what Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, verse 25 through 27. Now, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them. Now, I I want to pause here because sometimes people will say that what I'm about to read isn't a condition for salvation. It's a condition for discipleship, and so we're not looking at... He's just saying this to the crowd. He's not just saying this to the disciples. If anyone, universal inclusive language, anyone comes to me, does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus is not literally calling on us to hate our mothers and fathers our husbands and wives and our children and our own lives. What he's saying is, I'm, I'm demanding a level of commitment and loyalty that second place is so far behind, you could say it's almost like hatred. That, that's what he's saying. He's demanding that level of loyalty. Remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about how we're a nation, a kingdom of priests? Do you know how the tribe of Levi obtained their priesthood? Because after the golden calf incident, Moses said, who is for the Lord? The Levites came. And he told them, strap on your swords. You can read this in Exodus, I think, 24. And go from one side of the camp to the other and strike down whoever you see, whether it be your wife, your children, your mother, your father. And that was the discipline for the, for the idolatry of the golden calf. And, and the Levites did it. And in Deuteronomy 32... I believe. Yeah, Deuteronomy 32, Moses' farewell song. He recounts this. It's the same level of loyalty. What I'm trying to show you is there's a continuity of loyalty that God demands from his people. Look, Deuteronomy 32, verses, oh, hold on. No, 33, I'm sorry. For chapter 33, verses 8. And of Levi, so he, he writes this farewell song and he addresses each of the 12 tribes in turn and he gets to the tribe of Levi. And of Levi, he said, verse 8, give to Levi your Thurman and your Uman to your godly ones, those you tested at Massah, with whom you quarreled at the waters of Meribah. And then here's the reference to the golden calf and what they did. Who said of his father and mother, I regard them not. He disowned his brothers, ignored his children, for they observed the word and kept your covenant. That's how Levi obtained its priesthood. And then Jesus comes along and says, you know what? Through his apostles, we're a kingdom of priests. And and God's not calling on anyone to put on a sword, but he is calling on us that exact same level of loyalty and fealty and commitment. And so if, if we have to choose between family and Christ, we choose Christ. If we have to choose between and what, what often happens is you're not actually hating them, but often when you're, when you're forced to choose between the two, you'll be accused of that, won't you? I, I know people who've been unable to go to family weddings. I know people who've been unable to... Have, it, it can create harm. And Christ is right up front saying, no, I, I demand this level of loyalty to me. So yes, your, your father's aging. You need to take care. Come follow me. You don't delay discipleship because of family matters. And if you're sitting here today and you're thinking about becoming a Christian, but there's things you need to take care of, don't. 
Jesus invites you to follow him, even as he makes it clear he wants you to do that with eyes wide open. You must have no higher loyalty. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. Third, third encounter. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And here we get our second allusion to the ministry of Elijah. Turn to uh, 1 Kings chapter 19. In 1 Kings chapter 19, we're going to read about Elijah encountering and commissioning Elisha as his successor and, and prophet. Pick it up in verse 19 of chapter 19. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. This is a very skilled plowman. He's able to manage by himself 12 groups of, of oxen, 12 yoke of oxen plowing. And Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And and Elisha understands the significance of this prophet laying his mantle over him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. So there's there's the connection. The guy's request to Jesus and Jesus referencing putting your hand to the plow. That's the connection. It's in both of their minds, I think. And he said to him, go back for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. So, so Elijah walks by this skilled man plowing 12 yoke of oxen. He puts his, his mantle over him. He understands the significance. He leaves them. He says, I'll follow you. Let me first go kiss my father and my mother. And then there's a sign that Elisha has forever left his old life of, of plowing and, and managing the herds. He slaughters the 12th yoke of oxen, uses the meat to feed, make a feast presumably for his family. So that is what's being drawn upon here by this man and by Jesus' response. So, so what are we to learn here? What's, what's going on here back in Luke chapter 9? This. You must... Set your face. There's a typo there. To following him. You must set your face to following him. Now, this passage started with Jesus setting his face for God's purpose for him, for God's mission for him. Jesus being resolute, undeterred. And now here what we see is we as his disciples, and it's fitting, we're following after him, and the student is not greater than the teacher. We must set our face to follow him. So the man says, let me first go and say farewell to those at my home. Now, Jesus does not forbid this. Again, we run into problems and we think, well, why would that be a bad thing? Rather, what Jesus is getting at is the dangers implicit in such a request because what again is happening? This person doesn't say, I am following you now. I'm your disciple. And as your disciple, I'd like to request leave to go say goodbye to my family. What's happening is, First, I want to do something, then I'll follow you. Discipleship in all instances in here is delayed, right? So this, before I follow you, let me go take care of close up 
say goodbye to my family. And Jesus' response echoes this warning. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And the picture is pretty straightforward. You're plowing, especially if you're plowing 12 yoke of oxen, you've got, you want to make a straight line. You've got a lot of ox power under your control. And that was a joke. Okay. Um, and, and if you start looking around, what's going to happen? You're not going to be plowing a straight furrow. And so that's the picture. If, if you're going to be doing a job as a plowman faithfully, you're going to be looking straight ahead. You're going to be making sure your rows are straight. What's, what's the argument? What's the reasoning? Well, there's nothing fundamentally wrong in this man's request. However, it might reveal a certain longing, a certain fondness for, a certain amount of secret space in his heart for his old life. And if that's the case, if that's what's going on, then Jesus warns him, you, you can't be my disciple and be double-minded and look back. You can't follow after me if you're constantly looking back at what you left behind. This was one of the besetting sins of Israel. God redeems them from slavery, calls them out of Egypt. He, they come out with wealth. And all it takes is a couple dry and foodless days in the wilderness. And what do they say? Exodus 16, 13. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full and were slaves. They left that part out. But, but they, they were continually looking back to Egypt. And even as a nation, when, when kings and other armies and other countries would threaten Israel, what do they, they start sending down to Egypt. And who can forget the example of Lot's wife? Told to flee and not to look back at Sodom, yet something in Sodom called her heart, something in Sodom she still longed for, and she looked back and was turned to a pillar of salt. And so Jesus warns this man, he warns us, you want to follow after him, you, you want to make a decisive decision to follow him. That's the danger of those three seeds in the parable of the sower. They grow up for a little while and then get choked out. For a little while and get choked out. There's a famous example of this type of mentality. Um, you've heard of the phrase, burning your ships. It speaks of uh, an incident with Cortez in 1519. Now, what's, what's incorrect is Cortez did not burn his ships. That, that is absolutely inaccurate. It's repeated constantly. He did not burn his ships. He scuttled them. He sank them. In August 1519, I'll just read from a, a summary here. Um, as long as the fleet remained, there was always the chance of the men becoming discouraged and seizing the vessels to go home. Cortez came to a resolution that he would be possible that would only be possible um, to, to sorry he came to a resolution that would be possible only to a man of his unfaltering purpose and dauntless courage. Whoever wrote this is a big fan of Cortez. He made up his mind to destroy the fleet and told his plan to a few of his generals. Cortez immediately ordered that the cordage, sails, and iron be saved. In fact, what he did is he, he, he cannibalized as much of the ships as possible for the, for the goods to help build um, barracks and, and for the men, burning its wasteful. Um, but news that all of the fleet but one vessel remained had been scuttled, reached the soldiers like a thunderclap. Cortez faced them steadily, quote, if I have ordered the ships to be destroyed, he said, you should consider that mine is the greatest sacrifice. 
for they are my property, all, indeed, I possessed in the world. You, on the other hand, will derive one great advantage from it by the addition of a hundred able-bodied recruits before required to man the vessels. So by scuttling the ships, all the ship's crew that were needed are freed up to join the ranks. It would have been little serv- but even if the fleet had been saved, it would have been of little service in our present expedition, since we will not need it if we succeed, and we would be too far into the interior to profit by it if we fail. To be thus calculating chances and means of escape is unworthy of brave souls. We have set our hands to the work to look back as we advance will be our ruin. And there's a powerful illustration of, of removing the opportunity to turn around. Now, the author of Hebrews says something similar, and here we're actually dealing with Scripture, not Cortez, but Hebrews chapter 10, verses 36 to 39. You have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one shall come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We aren't those who put our hands to the plow and and turn around. We are those who have faith and preserve their souls. Hebrews 12. I'd like to call the worship team up now as we prepare for our final song as I read this last passage. Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder, and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and the seat at the right hand of God. Now Jesus is clear in these three episodes. We've got to renounce all that we have. We have to have no greater loyalty. And we need to set our face in following him. We need to count the cost. But the good news is, and as our next song and our final song announces, if we follow Jesus, we have Jesus. You may not have anything else, but you have Christ. And if you have Christ, you have everything. Please stand as we sing.